Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. The Church of Thyatira was an active church with many good works to its credit, but for all of their outward efforts, there was something lacking inwardly. We'll find out more about this as we join Pastor Phil in Revelation chapter 2, verse 19. Let's listen. Now, Jesus opens up in verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These things says the Son of God, only time in Revelation that title is used of, of him, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Remember we said that every letter kind of opens up with something of the vision that John saw of Jesus in chapter 1. Now in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read that as John saw this uh, vision of Jesus, he had eyes like a flame of fire and his feet were like bronze glowing in a fire. That, that idea of that the bronze glowing red hot. And eyes like a flame of fire signifies the fact that the Lord Jesus has this searching, penetrating Gaze that that searches out sin. Fire is uh, often analogous of, of judgment, and the eyes of Jesus being a flame of fire simply tells us that He sees everything. He sees, you know, all actions, not only actions, but He even uh, searches the hearts. He knows the motives of the heart. He knows the thoughts that we think. And when applying this to His church, Jesus Christ is always looking through His church putting his finger on things that are unpleasing, things that he wants us to change. Sometimes he has to bring adversity into our lives to show us some things that are unpleasing to him because, you know, until adversity comes, they're kind of buried. But tribulation is a way of bringing things to the surface, if you will. But he sees things that we are often oblivious or blinded to. That's why he said in Jeremiah that I alone search the hearts. And know what's going on. I alone can do that. But also the feet of glowing bronze is significant as well. Because kings in ancient times sat on elevated thrones. And that was because those coming before the king to be judged were always beneath the king's feet. As such, and it spoke of submission, of course, to the king's authority. But the fact that his feet are bronze, well, in the scriptures, bronze is the medal of judgment. And so once again, we see eyes of fire, feet like glowing bronze. It's speaking of him coming to this church with words of judgment. Not a good way, by the way, uh, if the Lord Jesus Christ is going to address a letter to our church, I wouldn't want him to say to us, uh, hey, you folks at Calvary Elk Grove, I'm the one with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like glowing bronze. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. You don't want to hear that from the Lord. Something bad is going on. That he's going to judge this church for if they don't repent. And we'll see what it is as we go. But as we move into this letter, I just want you to understand that I may say some things tonight that may offend some of you. I don't want to offend anybody. That's not really my intent. I'm just going to give you history. I'm just going to give you history. And sometimes, you know, the truth can be 
painful, but let's be open to what God is teaching here. Remember how we said that these were seven real churches in Asia Minor at that time? But how the, that in, in some ways they speak to the church throughout the church age? As we come to the letter to Thyatira, symbolically it represents that period of church history from about 600 to 1500 A.D., a period that is commonly called the Dark Ages or the Medieval Period. So what's in view here? is the medieval Roman Catholic Church in these verses to this church. Now, as with every one of these churches that he addresses letters to, except for one, Laodicea, he always starts with a commendation. He always starts with a commendation. And it's no different here. In verse 19, he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So Jesus gives this church six words of commendation. He first of all mentions their works. I hope you realize, and I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, but I hope you realize that the Roman Catholic Church has had many wonderful people throughout the centuries that have done many good works. I think of Mother Teresa. Uh, just being one example, who gave her entire life to to feed and to clothe and to care for the poor and the and the sickly, living in the slums of Calcutta. If you've ever been to Calcutta, and I haven't, but I've talked to people that have been there, you can't even imagine the poverty and the disease and all that goes with that. And she gave her life to help people who nobody else would help. And so I think of 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 her. Uh, I also think of how that uh, the Catholic Church, uh, unlike the Protestant churches, has stayed strong in its fight against abortion, has stayed strong in its fight against homosexuality in the church, has not condoned it like the Protestant denominations have, many of them. Catholic hospitals do not perform abortions, whereas many others, Lutheran, Methodist hospitals, have been performing abortions for years. So there are works. There are good works there. He also mentions their love. There have been many throughout the history of the Catholic Church that have really demonstrated the love of Christ. In fact, there were some wonderful saints of God that came out of this period, 600 to 1500, men like Peter Waldo, John Wycliffe, John Huss, and Savonola, were some of the men, uh, not to mention the women, of course, in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. So there's a lot of wonderful, uh, loving people that were in the church at this time. He talks about their faith. He commends them for faith. You know, I'm convinced that there are a good number of true believers with genuine faith in the Roman Catholic Church. I can't tell you what the percentage is compared to the whole church, a billion people, what the percentage would be, but I'm sure there are many who really know and love the Lord. Those of us who grew up in the Catholic Church may find that hard to believe because we saw things, obviously, that weren't right, But I know, I've met uh, Catholics who really know the Lord. Uh, They have genuine faith. In fact, the Catholic Church is orthodox in the fact that it believes in the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in that regard, there is orthodoxy in doctrine on that uh, those important doctrinal matters. He talks about their ministry, which is a Greek word that simply means service. And... uh, it doesn't, it's not hard to find throughout the world Catholic charities, Catholic hospitals, 
Catholic orphanages. I mean, the Catholic Church has got many uh, wonderful people doing a lot of wonderful uh, works in ministering to others around the world. He mentions their patience, which means their endurance, the fact that they have endured uh, even through those dark uh, days at this time. And the last, of course, uh, thing he mentions uh, at the end of verse 19, he says, And as for your works, the last are more than the first. That's a good commendation as well. He's saying that in this church, the works have increased rather than decreased over the years. Now you ask yourself, well, how could a church so full of good works and so many wonderful commendations be so far off in some other areas? And the reason for that is because they are not really rooted in the Word. They're rooted in good works, but not in good teaching. Sorry to say it, I grew up there. Their church was rooted in social, the Church of Thyatira, and even today the Catholic Church, was rooted in social causes, but not in sound doctrine. And folks, they're not the only ones, by the way. You have a lot of churches today, Protestant churches, that have become nothing more than social agencies. And I'm not putting that down in the sense that they're, not, they're, they're, they're doing good works, they're helping people. But the church of Jesus Christ is not, was never intended by him to be a social agency. It was intended by him to be a spiritual entity. He didn't say to his church, go into all the world and feed the hungry, clothe the naked. Those are worthy things to do, and we ought to do that in the course of preaching the gospel. But our mission... The Great Commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. Because you can feed the hungry, you can clothe the naked, and if you do no more to them or for them, you're going to launch them into a crisis eternity eventually. Whether they go with an empty stomach or a full stomach, it doesn't really matter, does it? If they are separated from Christ forever. The church is not a glorified or a sanctified Red Cross. It is a spiritual entity. Our responsibility is to preach the good news to everybody we come in contact with. Yes, in the course of doing that, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help the poor. I think those are worthy things that we should be doing, but they should take a backseat to our true mission. Otherwise, we're no longer a church. We are just a good social agency. Well, They had good things going on. But now Jesus moves from the commendation to the accusation, where he needs to address some problems. And he says in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The main problems that Jesus addresses concerning this church don't come from without in the form of persecution from the Jews or the Romans like the other churches that we have already studied, what they were experiencing. The real problems that Jesus Christ was addressing in this church came from within. Came from within. This church was not being injured from the outside. It was being injured and continues to be injured to this day from the inside through false doctrine and idolatrous practices. He talks about a woman there in Thyatira, in the church, who was calling herself a prophetess. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There was nothing wrong with a woman being a prophetess in the early church. We know that Philip the Evangelist had four daughters who were were prophetesses. That wasn't the problem. 
The problem was the church wasn't holding her accountable, wasn't checking what she was saying against the word of God. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He said, let two or three prophesy and let the others what? Judge. Judge how? Judge by holding up what they were saying next to the word of God to make sure they weren't saying anything that contradicted the word of God. Oh, but we're not to judge, are we? Sure we're to judge. But we're to judge with righteous judgment, Jesus said. We're to judge using the word of God in holding people accountable. Paul said, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. Good in the sense that it lines up with the word of God. John the Apostle said, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Look, the church today is being flooded by men and women who claim to be prophets and prophetesses who run around saying, Thus says the Lord, and yet nobody's checking them. Nobody's judging what they're saying. And in fact, if you try to challenge them because something they have said doesn't line up with the Word of God, They'll often hit you with, judge not lest you be judged, or touch not the Lord's anointed, which to me is a cop-out. If I'm really speaking on behalf of God, I have nothing to fear that you check what I'm saying against the Word of God. The fact that you don't want, that I don't want you to check what I'm saying when I claim to be speaking from God, that I don't want you to check it against the Word of God, to me that's a red flag all over the place. So it wasn't the fact that she was a prophetess that was the problem. The problem was the church there in Thyatira was not testing what she was saying. And apparently, and I'm just assuming this, just from inference, because she was claiming to be a prophetess, of course, that meant she claimed that God was speaking through her. And apparently what she was claiming is that God had given her some new revelation whereby it was not wrong for Christians to go ahead and go to these uh, worship celebrations for these pagan deities if that's what you're the pagan uh deity of your guild it's okay what if apollo the sun god is your patron deity that's okay go ahead to the temple of apollo and and go ahead and participate in the worship of apollo because while they're all worshiping the sun god you could be worshiping the son of god in your heart and you see how we can justify things you see how we can be in our minds, we can begin to justify why it's okay to compromise. And she had this church convinced it was okay to go ahead and mix Roman religion and practices with Christianity because, and she had good motives. She wanted Christians to have work, to be able to support their families. Oh, we can justify compromise all up one side and down the other. It's not hard to do. And she was teaching the church that it was okay to go ahead and kind of compromise, blend the two together. And that was the real problem. In essence, she had mixed the worship of the true God with the paganism of her day. And Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, I don't really think her name was Jezebel. I don't know what parent in their right mind would name their little girl Jezebel. I mean, it's kind of like naming your little boy Judas, right? I mean, who's going to name their... I've been a pastor a long time. I've never met a little girl yet named Jezebel or a little boy yet named Judas. There are some names that have become so tainted, so polluted, they just become synonymous with evil or some other thing. 
Jezebel, the, the very name has become a, a synonym in our uh, vernacular for, you know, somebody who is shady, somebody who is just immoral, that kind of thing. You know, you Jezebel, you're not giving somebody a compliment when you <laughs> call them that. I think the name here was symbolic. I think Jesus gave her that nickname because she was doing the same things that Jezebel in the Old Testament had done. Now, Jezebel was the idolatrous queen of the Old Testament, northern kingdom of Israel, who, and you have to understand this, okay, Jesus calls this woman Jezebel for a reason. Jezebel was the idolatrous queen who seduced Israel to add Baal worship into their religious ceremonies. So she was one who combined the paganism of her day with the worship of the true God, because after all, we're not really departing from the worship of God. We're just adding some things. And what Jezebel did was she blended paganism with the true worship of God. If we're going to really understand, though, this letter, it becomes vital for us to understand who Jezebel was and what she was all about. Jezebel, let me give you a little history. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was the king of Sidon, who was also a priest of Ashtarte. Astarte is another name for Semiramis. And from what I understand in my studies, uh, I discovered that the city of Thyatira at one time was called Semiramis. It's very interesting. We'll talk more about that. But his daughter, Jezebel, married Ahab, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, you will not find a more demonic duo. I mean, in fact... Their union, the marriage of, of Ahab and Jezebel, was by the Bible's own description the worst thing that ever happened in Israel's history. I mean, these two were so bad. You can read about that in 1 Kings 16, verses 31 through 33, how the Bible says that if it wasn't enough that Ahab did all the evil he did, he compounded it by marrying Jezebel, this wicked, wicked pagan woman brought her into the palace of the northern kingdom of Israel and together they had a reign that was absolutely well. The Bible says it was the worst period in Israel's history. And if you study Israel's history and you find out that some of the kings that reigned during this period, that's saying a lot. When you have the dubious title or distinction of being the worst of the worst, that's saying quite a bit about how bad these two were. But listen to me. In particular, there is an incident that's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 21 of how Jezebel acquired some land wrongfully that causes many commentators to see in the letter to Thyatira references to the Roman Catholic Church of the medieval period. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you the story. You can read it in 1 Kings 21 for yourself, but I'll just kind of paraphrase and tell you what happened. Ahab, of course, was the king there in the northern kingdom, lived in the palace. And next to his palace, there was a piece of land that belonged to Naboth. Now, Ahab one day, no doubt, walking on the roof of his palace, which was a patio, looking down, thought, you know, that piece of land right next to the, the palace here would make an excellent vegetable garden. I, I want to buy that, put a little vegetable garden next to the palace. So he goes down there and he meets with Naboth and says, look, here's the deal. I'd like to buy your piece of property. I'll give you money for it. Or if you'd rather, I'll give you a piece of property of equal or greater value somewhere else in the kingdom. 
Naboth says, well, king, thank you. It's a very generous offer, but you have to understand, this land has been in my family for generations. I, I can't sell you my inheritance. It's been passed down from one generation to the next. I can't sell it, king, but thank you anyways. Well, Ahab was very upset because Naboth wouldn't work his deal. And so he goes back into the palace, goes up into his room, refuses to eat, lays in his bed, and he sulks. Jezebel finds out that the king's up there sulking, won't eat. She goes up there and says, what's going on? Why are you up here sulking? And he says, well, because Naboth wouldn't work this deal, and he explains the whole story to her. She says, aren't you the king? He sa- she says, look, get up, have some deed, I'll take care of it. Goes to show you who was wearing the pants in the family. <laughs> Jezebel go, goes ahead and writes letters in the king's you know, using the king's signet ring to sign them, sends them to the leaders there in uh, Naboth's town. And she said to, says to the, the city fathers, look, proclaim a day of fasting, throw a feast, then put Naboth on a seat of honor, but bring two worthless characters into the feast who will accuse Naboth of blaspheming God and the king. And when this accusation is made, take him out and have him stoned. And that's what they did. And so the leaders of the city sent word back to Jezebel, what you have said has been done, Naboth is dead. So she goes into the king, says to Ahab, Naboth is dead, go down and take possession of his land. There is a classic title for this very procedure that comes to us out of history, where lands were acquired by the church through the use of false accusers who brought forth against innocent landowners false charges of heresy in order to execute them and then steal their property. It's called the Inquisition. The Inquisition. And these were horrible atrocities committed by the church in the name of Christ during what we commonly call the Dark Ages. And it's because of that that so many commentators see in this letter, in Jesus referencing this woman calling her Jezebel, So many commentators see in this letter a portrayal of the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, during this 900-year period, from 600 to 1500 A.D., the Catholic Church, using the practice of the Inquisitions and all, amassed for itself more land. I believe the Catholic Church officially is the greatest landowner in in the world. They acquired more land. They became wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. In fact... Uh, They have their own banking system uh, due to their incredible wealth and land holdings and all. And uh, for that 900-year period, vast amounts of money, property, and treasures were accumulated uh, by the church using the Inquisition, drumming up false charges against people, claiming that they blasphemed God, blasphemed the church, and so on, taking them out, killing them, then just taking their land. But during this time, they also instituted things like purgatory, which, uh, well, before that, even the practice of uh, selling indulgences were instituted by the... We're all talking about raising money now. Talking about things the church did to raise money and why it's so wealthy today. Well, not only did they wrongfully uh, steal land from people whose only crime was that they owned property that the church wanted. Sometimes it was an inheritance that they got and the church had its eye on that land and basically just had them killed to acquire it. But also they instituted the practices of selling indulgences. This is the thing that really infuriated Martin Luther 
and many others. He was not the only one, by the way. He just caused the whole thing to really come to the surface and really, the tensions were already there. The immorality of the church was already there. People were, were furious at where the, what the church was doing, selling. And, what is an indulgence? Well, if a person back then was going to be going out Saturday, maybe to a party or something, and they figured, well, you know what? I know I'm going to probably get drunk, and I might wind up with a prostitute. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy an indulgence, which is basically I'm going to buy my forgiveness in advance so I can go ahead and sin and feel you know, my conscience is clear because I've already bought my forgiveness. And the church raised many millions of dollars through that practice. Of course, later on then, they, uh, the doctrine of purgatory was developed, uh, which basically stated that one could speed up the process of the purging of a dead loved one who was in purgatory. You could speed up that process so they could get out of purgatory faster if you bought a candle and lit it there in the church. And so the selling of candles to light candles to help your dead loved ones to get out of purgatory faster. Uh, Later on, they even developed mass cards where you buy a mass card and mass was then said for person who had died was in purgatory. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day. Day by day.